Hi, and welcome to Him We Proclaim, the Bible teaching of John Fonville. We're picking up with our liturgy series called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. The next stop in our study is about prayer. According to John, one of the benefits of studying the older liturgies is how they foster reverence and worship. We're going to be studying one of those ancient liturgies today called the Collect for Purity. And John will explain there's a strong pattern that reminds us we're not alone when we pray individually. Instead, we're joined with past, present, and future prayers. And these liturgies teach us more about the God we pray to. Here's John with a message called The Colic for Purity, Part 1. We've been seeing for the past several weeks about how important liturgy is to our life. So let me review with you where we've been and then bring you up to what we're going to look at today. Thus far, we've seen how the flow of the church's worship, which begins with the service of the word, we've seen how it moves, how it flows, this gospel rhythm that the service takes us through. It begins with that opening invocation, calling out to the Lord for his mercy, for his help, for his rescue. Sometimes your prayer will just be help, and that's all you can utter, and that's enough, and he'll come help you. He'll come rescue you. And so that's how the service begins. It's an opening invocation. And then it flows to this gracious, unexpected greeting from the triune God, who is the gift giver, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he meets us with grace and peace, this unexpected greeting from God. And then it moves us to fervent, heartfelt, responsive acclamation. Praise to God. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And blessed be his kingdom now and forevermore. Amen. And then it leads us to a warm and gracious greeting among the Lord's gathered guests. The Lord be with you and also with you. Wishing well for your fellow brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ. There's nothing greater than the Lord to be with you, right? Because Adam and Eve used to have that, and they lost it, and that could be the most tragic thing ever is to lose communion with the Lord. And so we say, the Lord be with you and also with you, this warm and gracious greeting among the Lord's gathered guests. And then from this congregational greeting, the service of the word moves us today to prayer. Prayer, it moves us to prayer as God's gathered guests approach the gift giver who is now present among them. And so we come to him in prayer. There are three elements that are necessary for genuine worship. Do you know what those are? Those three elements are the word, the word of God, sacraments, and prayer. Where you have the word, sacraments, and prayer, you have genuine Christian worship, if those are faithfully administered according to God's word. And so prayer is a vital element in worship. Prayer, both in private and public, is the chief part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. It is the chief expression of our gratitude to God, both privately and in public. And so we see from the Bible that the early Christians gathered regularly to pray when they came together in corporate worship. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, listen. Luke says that they, the early Christians, devoted, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the gospel, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. There's a definite article to tell you, the prayers. 
the early church believers, when they came together in the first century, they devoted themselves to word, sacrament, and prayer. That's where that comes from. They devoted themselves to praying together regularly as they came together. They were devoted to the prayers. And so we know from this early account in the book of Acts that the first century church's liturgy, prayer comprised a vital central part of what they devoted themselves together when they came together in worship. And so this morning, we want to explore in just a little more depth what prayer is, and we want to look at how we can engage more deeply with God through prayer, both in private and public worship. And so that brings us to the fifth element in our corporate worship or in the service of the word, and that fifth element is this. It's known as the collect for purity. So you might be asking yourself, what is a collect? right? (laughs) That's an interesting word. What is a colic? Well, the word colic comes from the Latin, which means to gather or a gathering. And so a colic is simply a form that prayer takes to help the congregation and the pastor ministers pray together. So it is a form that draws together the thoughts of the day for the congregation And a collect would be generally focusing on a single theme. Now, in the collect for purity, which we pray each week, that is the theme that we are central, that we are focusing on as we pray it together as a church in worship. Also, the collect that you pray together as a church is prayed near the beginning of the liturgy, and that is a time of collective or corporate prayer. The colics that we pray in church remind us that our prayers are not alone. They're not our prayers alone. They're not just personal prayers alone. They are the prayers of the whole church. We are praying when we pray these colics. We are praying these prayers with the past and present and future church. It is a corporate gathering like, like you saw in the first century. They devoted themselves to the prayers. And so we're devoting ourselves together to the prayers. Now let me just talk really quick. This is a little instruction, and just take a second to help you to see what we're doing here. Um, The ancient form of prayer called a collect has a five-part structure. Now if you think this sounds weird, listen on. Evangelicals also employ a liturgical form of prayer that has a four-part structure that I know many of you are familiar with. It's called ACTS. How many of you have heard of Acts? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. A four-part structure of liturgical form that evangelicals employ. Most of you raised your hand. How many of you have heard of colics? Not a single hand. (laughs) Just a little church history lesson. This is way far more ancient than Acts, okay? Doesn't mean Acts is bad, But I think this form might be just a little bit better as you start to hear what it does. So there's a five-part structure of the colic. The colic starts with an address to God or a statement about God the Father, and it's often preceded by a descriptor such as almighty or merciful or eternal God, 
almighty God, eternal God, merciful God. The second part, it gives you a reason, a rationale for praying. It makes a statement or statements about God's nature or work that he's revealed in Scripture. And that revelation of God's nature and work forms the basis upon which the petition of the prayer is based. Then the third part of structure is you have petition. You have a request. The petition, as I said, is made on the basis of God's name and nature and his work. And these petitions are generally singular in their asking, in their petition. So the prayer might focus the church on asking for forgiveness. It might focus the church on asking for protection. It might focus on guidance or comfort, holiness, love. And in this case, what we're looking at is focusing on purity. And then the fourth part of the structure is you have the result or you have the fruit that you're asking for. The result or fruit by which the granting of the petition or request will be seen. And then finally, the fifth part of the structure is that you have a Trinitarian conclusion or a Trinitarian doxology, an exaltation of praise to God, which is Trinitarian in nature. And let me just walk you through how this prayer looks. Here's the address in the Colic for Purity. We pray this every week at the beginning. Here's the address, Almighty God. Here's the rationale or reason for addressing God. To you, all hearts are open, all desires known. From you, no secrets are hidden. So God's omniscience and God's omnipresence is, is made as the rationale or reason for praying to God. And then you make the petition on the basis of God's omniscience and his omnipresence. Here's the petition. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the working of your Holy Spirit. What is the fruit or result of that that you're asking for to be cleansed by the Holy Spirit? Here it is. That we may perfectly love you and our neighbor and worthily magnify your holy name. That is the result or fruit. And then it concludes with a Trinitarian conclusion or a Trinitarian doxology. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, amen. So that's the collect. And that's the form of prayer that is an ancient form of prayer that has shaped and taught and instructed and formed the people's understanding of God, who he is, what you're to ask for, what you are to expect in return, and to then see as you conclude, he's a trinity, and you praise him for who he is. And so this has been a powerful form of prayer for many, many, many ages in the church. I want to specifically say a few words about using prescribed forms of prayer in corporate worship. Let me say this. We are all beginners in prayer, really, right? We're all beginners in it. We're all beginners in worship, really. The reality is, is that we don't pray very well, and we don't know how to pray, most of us, if we're being honest, uh, we know that our prayer life is not what it should be, right? Many times we don't know what to say, since we, we just don't pray because we don't know what to say. Sometimes 
our minds just often wander, right? Have you ever tried to sit and pray and your mind <laughs> wanders over and over, just wanders and wanders? And so because we don't know what to say and our minds often wander, we don't know what really we are to be doing because we don't pray well. We don't feel a freedom to pray. We feel kind of like in bondage. We feel chained. We don't feel free to pray. Now, there is a place for informal, extemporaneous, personal prayers. But if your prayer life is limited to extemporaneous, personally composed prayers, a couple of things are going to happen to your prayer life. First, your prayer life will be susceptible to this subjective, selfish impulse called the flesh. But then second, your prayer life will be limited by your level of sanctification. Your prayer life will be limited by your knowledge of God. Our prayer life, both public and private, listen carefully, is tied to how well we know God. Listen to what Graham Goldsworthy writes about this in his book, Prayer and the Knowledge of God. He says, if prayer is talking to God, who is this God that we talk to? At the level of our human experience, we can assert the following. How we talk to people and what we say will, to a large extent, be governed by how well we know them. The better we know them and the more we know about them, the more intimate our speaking will be. Your conversation with your wife will be far better, or should be, right? (laughs) Far better than your conversation will be with your best bud hanging out watching football. Now, you'll have good conversations with your football buddies, but not like your wife, because you know her intimately and far better. Talking to a stranger... That may involve a rather tentative approach in which a few formal pleasantries are offered and perhaps a request made. Thus, we can say that how we know God will greatly affect the way we approach him in prayer. You see, we need to understand how prayer relates to our knowledge of God and to to his grace given to us in the gospel to really shape and form our prayers on a deeper level. And so this is where prescribed forms of prayer and corporate worship can be so helpful and freeing. We don't know what to pray for. We don't really know how to pray. We don't know what to say. We don't have the content. We don't know God like we should. Our sanctification is not where it should be. And this is where the prescribed forms of corporate prayer and the liturgy are so freeing and helpful. Far from being rote, far from being mechanical, far from being formal, they enrich and deepen and educate and teach and shape and form our prayer life. So in one sense, we can say there's no such thing as an informal prayer. All prayers follow some type or form or pattern. If you take a moment to examine your extemporaneous, spontaneous prayer life, in your private prayer life, you will begin to see that you indeed follow certain patterns, certain language, certain habits, and you weren't even aware of them. One of the greatest ones you hear all the time 
And evangelical prayers are the just prayers. We just, we just, we just, we just, we just. That is a liturgical form. It's not a very good one, not very helpful, but it is one. Another one, dear God, dear God, dear God, dear God. These are forms that shape our habit and our praying. And we want to go beyond these. So all prayers follow some type or form. Some forms are more thoughtful and intelligible than others. Almighty, everlasting God, Father of all mercies and God of all comfort. So much better way to address your Father than, dear God, we just, right? And so just because a prayer is written down does not exclude it from being from the heart. Prescribed forms of prayer expand our prayer life. It shapes the structure of our prayer life. It changes the language of our prayer life. It deepens the content of our prayer life. It gives us a theology of private and public praying and instructs us on how to do this better. And so the capital L liturgy on Sunday morning teaches us how to pray in the lowercase l liturgy Monday through Saturday. How do you pray when you wake up tomorrow morning? The way you learn in corporate worship Sunday morning. The prayers in corporate worship give us a thoughtful form or pattern. And so the liturgy is profoundly biblical. The ancient liturgies, what is helpful about the historic liturgies of the church is that they are profoundly filled with Holy Scripture and the doctrine of justification was the shape and content of the liturgy. That was the brilliance of the English Reformation with the Book of Common Prayer. It was written to shape people's praying based on the doctrine of justification. Almost all the text of the liturgy is a word for word directly from the Bible. And so when we're praying the liturgy, when we're praying these prayers, we are not hearing and speaking man's words. We are praying the word of God, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that is a true divine conversation between God and man. We are praying scripture, summarized and formulated into simple forms to help people. And a simple pharmacolic takes one theme, focuses your mind on it, teaches you to pray that to God. And so the collect for purity is a good example of how this ancient forum intentionally and unintentionally shapes or structures both our public and our private prayer life. Now, with that as an introduction here, what does the collect for purity say as a prayer? What does it teach us as a prayer? How does this ancient form of prayer inform our knowledge of God, help us to pray, know what to say? What does it teach us about how to approach God in the right manner and frame of mind? How does it help us engage more deeply with God, both in public and in private worship? I just want to give you four thoughts about that this morning. Here's the first. First, the colic for purity is a prayer of preparation. How we prepare for worship is vital. I was talking with Jared before the service. How was your week, Jared? It's good to see you. Love you, man. Glad you're here. Glad you're on that piano again. Such a blessing. 
how was your week? He said, well, it was great. And um, I went to bed at 10 o'clock last night and I woke up at 7.30. I'm like, man, I bet you feel really good today, don't you? Because that's a lot of sleep. He goes, yeah, I feel really refreshed. How we prepare for worship is vital. And it begins on Saturday, right? (laughs) It begins. I wanted to stay up last night and watch, I'm sorry, all you Florida State fans, watch Clemson win. I really did. But at 10 o'clock, as hyped as I was, I, took, I looked at David. I said, we're turning it off. We got church tomorrow. We got to go to bed. And we'll look up and sportacular when we wake up and watch the highlights. Because I had to be here prepared to lead this service, and I needed rest. So how we prepare for worship is vital. But when we come to church, isn't it true that we don't always feel like praying? Be honest. I do. <laughs> and I'm leading you, right? Um, the colic for purity, the liturgy stirs us up to prayer. It stirs us. When your pastor doesn't feel like praying, the liturgy says, pray, and leads me to pray. It stirs me up. It reminds me. It protects me, and it protects you from me. The fact that the colic for purity occurs near the beginning of the liturgy points it to the importance of taking preparation for worship seriously. Isn't it true that when we come to church, our frame of mind and state of heart isn't as it always should be? Isn't that true? How often do we come distracted? How often do we come in a rush? How often do we come late? How often do we come sleepy from going to bed too late the night before? Unless it's like a national championship and you're, you get one Sunday off for that. <laughs> um, what if I told you next Sunday that Prince William and Cade Middleton were going to be present in our service at Paramount? How would their presence affect your preparation for next Sunday? I think it might affect it, right? If knowing we will be in the presence of an earthly king and queen affects how we prepare, how much more should our preparation for worship be in view of the awesome privilege of worshiping week after week in the presence of the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? I think that this is something that is worth us taking note of. Um, Lutheran theologian Timothy Quill, I love reading what he writes. He says, every generation has to deal with disorder and irreverence and frivolity unbecoming of worshipers. The church does not gather over a beer in a tavern. It does not gather as spectators at the theater. It does not gather as cheering sports fans in a stadium. The church gathers in a heavenly throne room for an audience with the king. He's exactly right. I want you to recall two exhortations from the author of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the king on the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near to God on the throne of grace in corporate worship and in private worship and prayer. But I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. 
Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For, here's the reason why, our God is a consuming fire. God calls us in the book of Hebrews to come before him and worship with confidence because he is a king reigning on a throne of grace, ready to dispense grace and mercy on those who call upon him. But the same king who reigns on a throne of grace and dispenses the gifts of mercy and grace upon his gathered guests says, do not forget to offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe because that king on a throne of grace is a consuming fire. The author of Hebrews reminds us that worship is a serious life and death reality. In worship, in the liturgy, in the divine service, God's gift to you, sinners come into the very presence of the holy God himself. And so one of the benefits of the older liturgies is they foster reverence in worship, and certainly this is true of the colic for purity. Thanks, John. The message you're hearing is called the colic for purity, and that's part one. We'll pick up with part two of this message next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.